His name is Greg Ells, and he was highly regarded as the Executive Director of Counseling and Psychological Services at the University of Pennsylvania. He had been at Cornell for a decade. He was called by students and faculty alike a transformational teacher. Those who came to him for counseling found great support and encouragement. He chaired the American College of Mental Health Association. He was a champion in the area of mental health. He served as president of the Counseling Center, had numerous webinars, countless publications, a leader in the field. But at age 52, he jumped out of, the, of a 17th floor, on the 17th floor of a building and took his own life. And that was last September of 2019. Left no note, except his mother said that the world was getting to him and the pressure of being at Penn was immense. Back in 2019, they said that one in five college students was committing suicide. I have no idea what that stat is now in 2020 because of COVID, but it's got to be increased greatly. And I think we have to admit that there is a whole lot of grief and groaning going on. If you open up your Bibles to that portion of Scripture that Pastor Doug read a moment ago, Romans chapter 8 Did you notice that creation is groaning? Verse 22. After the fall of man, this wonderful creation that God had made, immaculate and pristine, was also defiled by sin. So the ground was no longer just freely giving up its food with a little bit of work. Now there would be thorns and thistles and opposition And as beautiful as creation is, as beautiful as the mountains are, the Rocky Mountains in Colorado, this this creation wants more. It wants to return to its God-designed perfection and its groaning to be there. How about verse 23? We are groaning. Christians are groaning, not just creation. For we have received the Spirit, it says earlier in the book of Romans. In fact, if we don't have the Spirit, we don't belong to God. It's the Spirit who convicts us. It's the Spirit who regenerates us. It's the Spirit who indwells in us. And yet, even though we have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly because we're not all we should be. We're awaiting the final installment of our adoption. If you've ever gone through the adoption process, you'll know that it is a long process, especially if you're getting a child from overseas, which probably can't even be done now, and the, the red tape was unbelievable, and you would get approvals, and, but before there was the actual receiving and the adoption completed, it was a long period of time, and there was a lot of groaning going on, and so it is for us. We wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, that is, the redemption of our bodies. So here we are with the earnest, the down payment of the Holy Spirit in us, and yet still not having everything we want, we're groaning. There is indeed a whole lot of groaning going on. 
I'm reminded of Jacob's words in Genesis chapter 42 when he said, all these things are against me. Have you ever felt that way? Everything is against me. I try to do a simple project at home and nothing works. I never once think that it's probably the person working the tools. It's always got to be the tools. But everything seems to be against me. So this morning I want to tell you that God is for you. In fact, I want to put it this way, as the scripture does in Romans 8, God is praying for you. He's praying for us. Isn't that an amazing statement? I mean, think about that for a moment. God is praying for you. You say, where do you get that? Well, from verse 26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans, which words cannot express. So God's Spirit is praying for us. It's the Spirit who steps in and helps us in our weakness. We are so limited. We're often in confusion. That's common. And we have no idea how to get out of our groaning, and so the Spirit steps in and groans for us. It's a very interesting term to describe the Spirit's prayer. A sigh is one thing. A groan, oh, it's deeper, more painful. And the Spirit passionately prays for us which groanings, which words cannot express, which mystifies me when people try to pray in the words of the Spirit when the Bible says here the Spirit prays with words with feelings and emotions that uh, words cannot convey. The Spirit's groans cannot be imprisoned with everyday words. The language is too deep. And so the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is praying for us and helping in our weakness. There is a, was a Norwegian theologian by the name of Old Halsby. He died in 1991, lived in Norway, of course, but he wrote a great book on prayer. It's one of those books you can't read through quickly unless you don't care about understanding what you read. It takes time to walk through it. But he said something I had never heard before, and I took down several notes about helplessness. He said, as far as I can see, prayer has been ordained only for the helpless, Prayer and helplessness are inseparable. Only he who is helpless can truly pray. Do you feel pretty self-sufficient? It's going to be tough to pray. Your helplessness is your best prayer. It calls from your heart to the heart of God with greater effect than all your uttered pleas. Helplessness is the real secret and the impelling power of prayer. You should therefore rather thank, try to thank God for the feeling of helplessness which he has given you. It is one of the greatest gifts which God can impart to you because it is the gift that draws you to him. Prayer therefore simply consists 
and telling God day by day in what ways we feel that we are helpless. And the Spirit's there to pray for us with groans that cannot be uttered. Also, not only does he help us in our weakness and pray with these inexpressible groans, but he prays according to the will of God. That's not really surprising. Verse 27, he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, that is God the Father, or it could be a specific reference to God the Son, who according to the book of the Revelation is the searcher of the minds and hearts. But God who searches our hearts also knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. God never does anything inconsistent with himself. There are some some things God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot be inconsistent with his own character. So every prayer uttered by the Holy Spirit, every prayer groaned to the Father on our behalf by the Spirit is according to the Father's perfect will. But you say, well, what is that perfect will of God? The next three verses tell us. And we know that in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. The purpose of verse 28 is the will of God in verse 27. The Spirit is praying as the Father is working so that his work indeed will be effectual in us, those who love him and those who have been called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose? Well, it's expressed in verse 29 and 30. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters, among many brethren. Now, this all happened before time began. He foreknows us. And that word is often associated with the idea of love. He loves us, and what does he predestine us to? To be like Christ. Every believer is predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. Actually, the word predestined, I think, used five times in the New Testament, is always used of believers. In other words, God is committed to making you like his son. And that is not always an easy process. It's a great purpose, a glorious purpose. But it started before time began. Because God is so pleased with his son that he wants to populate eternity with people just like him. He becomes the firstborn among many just like him. Verse 30, and those he predestined, he called. Now that happens in time when the spirit convicts us and calls him to himself, us to himself. And then he justifies us in Christ, mentioned here so clearly in the book of Romans chapter 5, chapter 3 as well. And those he justified, he glorified. Now what I want you to see is that these five words link together and are inseparable. And you cannot have one without the other. You cannot be called 
and not glorified. You cannot be justified and not glorified. This is the work of God behind the scenes due to the prayer of the Holy Spirit drawing us to himself. Now you hear many times at a testimony meeting, people quote Romans 8, 28, don't they? And sometimes they use a translation, which isn't my favorite, all things work together for good. But it's God who works all things together for good, right? He's harmonizing. It's like an orchestra with all the pieces. You get people who don't know what they're doing and they're not in sync, but you listen to a beautiful orchestra and the music is amazing. That's what God is doing. He's orchestrating all the events of our life to create a beautiful symphony, to bring him glory. We hear people quote verse 28 all the time without reference to the Spirit's prayer or the Father's plan. And I want you to know that Romans 8.28 is cradled between the two. And you can't quote 28 without having some appreciation for the fact that God is praying for you and the Spirit is working all things according to his will. Now remember this, the Holy Spirit lives in our hearts. He's called the comforter. Jesus said, I have to leave so I can send you a comforter, one who comes alongside you to help, but even more intimate than that, one who dwells in you and knows your mind and prays for you. I'm always encouraged when you people tell me that you're praying for the staff and some of you every day, and that is utterly fantastic. And in no way do I want to discourage you at all when I say, but I'm really excited to hear that God is praying for me, right? <laughs> it's like we said a moment ago with Tammy, we, we need God's word, but we need God's people to get us through these times. And you know God's people are praying for you, but now I want to tell you that God is for you as he labors and groans in prayer through his spirit that you will be conformed to the image of Christ according to the perfect purpose and plan of God. That to me is thrilling. And I don't care what's going on in this world, the plan of God is not thwarted. It's not delayed. It's not offbeat. It's right on. It's perfect. So, verse 31, what can we say to this? How shall we respond to these things? It's as though Paul puts his pen down and says, I am flabbergasted by the goodness of God. I'm overwhelmed. Simple conclusion is this. If God is for us, it doesn't make any difference who's against us. Line up your enemies and they're no match for God. But that's not all. God is praying for us. God's spirit is praying for us. But notice God's son is praying for us. This begins with verse 32. The one who is for us is the one who spared not his own son. He delivered him up. He gave him up. For all of us. And with that giving, how will he not also 
graciously give us everything else. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justified. Who condemns you? No one. Christ who is, is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised to life, and is at this present moment seated at the right hand of God and interceding for you or for us. God's son is praying for us. Three things about the prayer of God's son from the text. Number one, it's based on his sacrifice. If Jesus had not given his life for us, as described in verse 32, there would be no reason to pray for us. And that is, there would be no reason for him to help us. We would still be separated from him. There's a rational argument here in verse 32 from the greater to the lesser. He who spared not his own son but delivered him up for us all, greatest gift, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? All things come through Christ, the argument says, and anything that God would give to us is not as great as the gift he's already given, right? And it's a simple argument. If he gives you his son, he's going to give you his time. He's going to provide for you mental stability. He's going to get you through the storm. He's going to be a ref. On and on. He is going to be there for it all. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransom sinner die. You never outgrow the gospel. And the prayer of Christ is grounded in his sacrifice for us. God, God's son is praying for us, and it's also based on his exaltation. Verse 34, Christ is the one who died, more than that, he was raised to life. In other words, if Christ only died for us and was buried, the gospel would, be, would not be non-existent. The gospel is suffered, died, buried, and raised again. But if you have suffered, died, buried, period, you have no gospel. So the prayer of Christ now is based on his exaltation. The spirit prays from inside our heart. The son prays from on the throne, seated at the right hand of the father. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity in all of this. The father's plan, spirit and the son are praying. Philippians chapter two and verse nine says, after Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, therefore he exalted him. He highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One of the amazing things in our world is man's desire 
to be in charge or in control. And you see people jockeying for position, whether it's politically, whether it's in the sports world, they want to be the best, they want to be on top, they want to be in control. They'll lie, cheat, still, kill to get there. Every knee shall bow because Christ is on the throne. And that's where he prays from. Again, if someone is going to do you a favor and you need something in the realm of, oh, let's say, help from the government, if you have someone on the inside, like your representative, who knows the person or is the person who can deliver, that's fantastic. We've got someone on the inside. We've got someone on the very top. The sacrifice of Christ is the supreme sacrifice of love. And now we have the supreme authority praying for us. And that, my friend, is amazing. But one final thing, you've got this. He's at the right hand of God making intercession for us. He's praying. Constant interceding. Intercession is where you pray on behalf of someone else. But again, it denotes passion, fervency, a sense of urgency. Christ is praying constantly on our behalf. When the disciples back in Matthew chapter 14 were rowing on the sea, Christ had gone up onto the mountain and the Bible says he was praying. And he was watching them and praying for them. Had they known that, it would have brought a lot of comfort. And they didn't know that until he came walking to them on the water. You and I know that Christ is praying for us. And yet our troubles aren't gone. And we're still groaning. In fact, what does it say in the text? Verse 38 I'm convinced that neither death nor life, angels, demons, present or future things, any power, height or depth, anything in all creation will separate us from the love of God. Or verse 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? You see, it's implied that they're going through all of that. And we know historically they were. Paul was persecuted and endured hardship without having food to eat and lost his head by way of execution with a sword. So the love of Christ, verse 35, and the love of God, verse 39, do not keep us away from hard times. Where did we get this idea? Oh, I know, we're Americans. <laughs> yeah, it's been easy. I say easy, maybe for my generation, post-World War II and on, it's, it's been pretty easy. And now it isn't. And that's not right. We're supposed to have it easy. Why? We're Americans. <laughs> no wonder we don't pray. We're Americans. We're independent. We're not helpless. Don't call me helpless. 
Well, I'm here to tell you I am. And so are you. And we need Christ. We need the Spirit's prayers. We need one another. And we need to be encouraged. And the encouragement is this. If God is for us, who can be against us? Let me no more my comfort draw from my frail hold of thee. In this alone rejoice with awe thy mighty grasp of me. He holds me in his hand and will not let me go. He prays for me through his spirit and the Son, one in my heart, one on the throne. And because of this, I am more than a conqueror. Look at Romans 8, 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Isn't that great? Verse 35, the love of Christ. Verse 39, the love of God. Verse 37, him who loves us. Verse 28, if we love him. These are our blessings. What's more than a, I'd be satisfied with just conqueror. I mean, I'd be satisfied with doing pretty good. But that's not enough. We are more than conquerors. Two English words make up, or I should say two Greek words make up this one compound word, but we know them in English. The first word is hyper. We translate it in English, hyper. And it means more than, above the norm. And the second word is Nike. Yes, the shoe company took the Greek name Conquer, Victory. And whoever wears those shoes will win in every race. That's how they want to sell it. In Christ, over all the persecutions and famines and hardships, the danger of the sword, the work of demons, whatever it might be, we are more than conquerors. How can I experience that? Christ is praying for me. But there is growth involved. Look at verse 18 of chapter 8. Paul says, I consider. Verse 28, we know. Verse 38, I am convinced. Verse 18, we consider. Verse 28, we know. Verse 38, we're convinced. Where are you? A lot of Christians consider the work of God. Others advance to a deeper understanding and knowledge of it. But when you are convinced, you live differently. So many people will say when they come to church, oh, I know all about that stuff. Yeah, you do, but are you convinced? Has it affected your mind so much, a deep conviction within your soul that God's word is true and this is what he said, that now you live according, you trust him. That's what we've got to do. We've got to begin to trust him. And not be so shaken by the world around us. For in Christ, we're more 
than conquerors. Where's that face coming from the church? Where's that front and message? With God on our side, we are constant victors. Do you remember back in 1992, it was the Olympics in Barcelona, Spain, and I think it was the first time that professional athletes were allowed to compete in what used to be just an amateur uh, competition. And so the United States put together a basketball team with professional basketball players. Remember that? They were called the Dream Team. Magic Johnson from Lansing was there, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, I mean, just the, the best of the best in the NBA. And they went to play against these other teams. Well, they played eight games, and guess what? They won them all. The average point spread in every victory was over 43 points. <laughs> they won the gold medal. <laughs> it was amazing, right? Players from other teams were asking for their autographs before the game started. They'd already given up. And the coach, Chuck Daly, who was coaching the Detroit team at that time, said, you are going to see professionals play in the Olympics again, but you'll never see a professional team like this. This team was majestic. <laughs> and I think... It'd be great if I were playing basketball to have Magic Johnson on my side. Maybe not now, but then. But I've got God on my side. And we, we, you and me, we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. Amen.